what kind of world are we living in? Based on some of the events of the last week, a tumultuous, ugly, and sinful one. During this last week, we've seen some of the worst of this world put on display. We're living in a world where the largest Protestant Christian denomination in the United States is reckoning with the release of a report on sexual abuse within the denomination. The independent investigation found credible allegations of sexual abuse were ignored or covered up over the last 20 years, bringing shame to the name of Christ and his church. We're living in a world where an 18-year-old shot and killed 19 students and two teachers in an elementary school in Texas. As horrifying as these events have been, we aren't experiencing something new. But the latest examples of the impact of sin and death on humanity. These events tell us something is fundamentally wrong with humanity. There is something going on that causes us to abuse and kill other men, women, and children. And while we may look at these horrible events and want to distance ourselves from them as much as we can, the even harder reality is that while these types of things are going on around us, they're going on within us too. Jesus taught us that we're guilty of adultery before God when we lust after someone else. We don't have to touch the other person. All we have to do is look with sinful intentions. Jesus taught that we're guilty of murder before God when we are angry and insult another person by calling them a fool. We don't get a free pass from accountability for our sins because they haven't made headlines. We're not separate from all the problems in the world. We're a part of them too. Sin brings death for everyone and pulls us away from the life God intended for us. We've all sinned in God's eyes. When we see these events unfold before our eyes, how should we respond? Is despair the order of the day? I'm here to tell you this morning, that while sin and the horrors it perpetuates on us and our fellow man are real, undeniably real, there's also hope and comfort for us that comes from God and his word. God knew what the effects of sin would be on the people he created in his own image. He knew before he created the heavens and earth and instructed Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not only did God know how terribly sin would affect us and the world he made, he also knew what it would take to set things right. From before time began, God had a plan to overcome sin and its effects on the human race. God himself would have, would have to come in human form, not to be loved and obeyed as he rightly deserved, but to be mocked and crucified so that he we could be forgiven for our sin and reconciled to him. While God knows us from the inside out, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 also understands our experiences. 
because he faced similar difficulties and challenges. The problems we face today are not new, but have been plaguing humanity for thousands of years. In verses 49 through 56 of Psalm 119, the psalmist helps us understand how God comforts us in affliction, comforts us through his judgments, and comforts us through faith and obedience to him. I'm guessing that all of us here today could use some comfort this morning in the midst of this tumultuous and sinful world. So let's hear from God's word. Verses 49 through 50 provide us insight into how God comforts us during our affliction. What we find is that God eases our pain and suffering by giving us hope through his word and giving us life through his promises. The psalmist writes, Remember your word to your servant. You have given me hope through it. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your promise has given me life. The psalmist begins by acknowledging that he is God's servant and asking God to remember his word to him. Is he afraid that God will forget his word? No, the psalmist knows that God remembers his promises and keeps them. God is trustworthy. So when he says he'll do something, you can count on him to do it. The psalmist has put his hope in God's word, and he is completely relying on God to keep it. He isn't doubting God's ability to remember, but requesting God to be faithful to do what he said he would. We can identify this with this, can't we? When we put our faith in Jesus, we know that he's going to return one day. We still pray for his return. We ask for him to remember his promise to return. We ask him to come back as soon as possible. In fact, today would be great. We ask him to sustain us until he does return. As his servants, we've put our hope in him and we want him to remember and fulfill his promises to us. Our hope is sure because it's based on God's word but we still want to see it become our reality as soon as possible. One of the challenges of living in a sinful, sinful world is that we can get mixed up in our thinking. We can wonder whether we are thinking about a situation in the right way or not. Because we aren't always confident we're thinking the right way, trusting in something or someone can make us feel exposed and uncomfortable. What if we trust in something that lets us down? What if we find there is something better to trust in? The psalmist encourages us that we don't need to have these types of concerns about God and his word. God knows we get mixed up sometimes. God knows we need someone to trust in, regardless of our circumstances or what's going on in the world around us. God knows that we will face despair and need hope in the midst of it. As the psalmist hoped in God's word, he is reminding us that God will never let us down and there's no one better to trust him. The answer to whether we can trust God is absolutely we can. As we're reminded of God's words, and put our hope in them. 
How do we know there's no one better than God? God made the heavens and the earth, showing his power to create by speaking them into existence. After creating humanity, God revealed himself to his people so that they could truly know him and walk with him. Through time, his revelation progressed so that we grew to know him better and see that everything he does is good. Asaph, writing at the end of Psalm 83, sums up how God is better than everyone else. May they know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over the whole earth. The most high God is the one who at the right time sent Jesus to demonstrate to us how God lives, speaks, and acts. Jesus was both our example of what it looks like to faithfully follow God and our Savior. When we were dead in sin and unable to save ourselves from our sins, God provided us the salvation we couldn't provide for ourselves and demonstrated his love, grace, and mercy. There is no one else like him. Along with the psalmist finding hope through God's word, he is directly comforted from pain and suffering through God's promise to give him life. When we feel the pain and suffering of the tumultuous world we live in, like we have this last week, we want relief. We receive relief through God promising us life. The wonderful thing about God's promise of life is that it was fulfilled through Jesus. In Jesus, we have life today and life for the rest of our days. I've already talked about our future hope in Jesus returning. When he returns, he will judge all the horrible things that have happened in the world and set them right. But how should we deal with all the difficulties we face today? We deal with them by trusting in God to provide us life in him day by day. That life comes to us through faith in Jesus, through receiving the spirit of God to instruct us to know God and to walk with him. That life gives us hope in the midst of today's sorrow because we know that God cares for us and he's working to make us like himself. That life will give us hope in the midst of tomorrow's sorrow when it comes. It will give us comfort throughout our entire lives because the promise of life that God gives us is an enduring promise. God is constantly at work in us, giving us life and turning us away from sin. There's going to be affliction for us in this world. That's a given. If you put your hope in a life free of pain and suffering, you're trusting in a false hope and are going to be disappointed. The psalmist doesn't say that his comfort in affliction is that he never experiences affliction. But rather that God provides him comfort in his affliction. Through God's promises, God gives him life that comforts him through his affliction. When we see the world through God's eyes, we'll see many things that cause us pain and suffering because they aren't the way God intended them to be. In the same way that we should expect to experience affliction, we should also expect that we'll suffer for trusting in God. Followers of Jesus are going to suffer in this world until he returns. 
But we are comforted in the midst of that suffering because we're suffering for his sake. This sinful world is opposed to God and his people and sometimes takes actions to discourage us from continuing in faith. Verses 51 through 53 help us understand how God comforts us through his judgments when we suffer as his followers. When we face ridicule for obeying God and experience anger when we see people reject God, we're comforted knowing that God will justly judge all of humanity. The psalmist writes, The arrogant constantly ridicule me, but I do not turn away from your instruction. Lord, I remember your judgments from long ago and find comfort. Fury seizes me because of the wicked who reject your instruction. People who are proud and arrogant won't trust in God because it means humbling themselves and admitting that they need God to rescue them. Instead, they set themselves above God in their own minds and judge him by their flawed standards. While there are multiple ways in which this sinful attitude demonstrates itself, the one the psalmist experiences is being constantly ridiculed for putting his trust in God. It isn't enough for the proud to turn away from God themselves. They also want to mock those who trust in him. So they'll say all kinds of things to mock people who trust in God. Rex Murphy, in an article titled, What the Tolerant Must Tolerate, sums up the mocking and ridicule Christians face today. To be a serious Christian in modern Western culture is to be the favored easy target of every progressive thinker and every half-witted comedian. It is to have your sensibilities and your deepest beliefs on perpetual call for taunts, mockery, and desecration. At a time when all progressives preach full volume for inclusivity, in, sorry, exclusive, inclusivity, I knew I was going to trip up on that word, inclusivity and sensitivity for the utmost care in speech when speaking of others with differing views or hues, Christians as Christians are under a constant hail of abuse and disregard. There is nothing too low or too vulgar. Some atheists today think that they're morally obligated to mock people who have faith in God. Whether it's Richard Dawkins encouraging an audience to publicly mock or ridicule people of faith, or a blog post I found that says, mocking religion is a moral imperative for an atheist. The more I am exposed and confronted with religious rhetoric and dogma, the more justified and necessary is my response. So we expect that we'll be ridiculed for our faith in God. But how should we respond to this ridicule? Let's be honest. Being ridiculed is very uncomfortable. And we may be tempted to turn away from God and his instruction. The psalmist remains steadfast and encourages us to do the same when he says, I do not turn away from your instruction. Consider Jesus' example of obeying God's instruction when he was being mocked. Jesus faced ridicule while he was dying on the cross to pay for the sins of humanity. But he didn't turn away from fulfilling God's law. The chief priests and scribes mocked him by saying that he could save others but not himself. 
Jesus stayed the course of laying down his life to bring salvation for all who put their trust in him. Jesus wouldn't come down from the cross, but faithfully completed the course the Father set for him. He lived a perfect life, died for the sins of others, rose from the dead, and ascended to God's right hand where he is today. The challenge we can face while we're being mocked is that we can minimize the long-term benefits of trusting in God for the temporary benefit of having the mocking stop. If you've ever been in that situation, the psalmist wants you to remember to keep obeying God's instruction and be comforted by God's judgment. God has been judging humanity ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against him. His judgments are fair and just. God is able to make people account for their sins. All of Adam and Eve's descendants still experience the consequences of their sin in curses that cause painful childbirth and painful labor. God also brought judgment through a worldwide flood, burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, and the death of the Israelites in the wilderness after they refused to enter the land God promised them, just to name a few of his judgments. As David writes in Psalm 9, 7, and 8, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. We can rest assured that whatever mockery or ridicule we experience, God is not mocked and will judge those who are arrogant and proud with righteousness and fairness. The psalmist is comforted that God is a just judge and has been judging fairly from the beginning of time. Those who trust in God will be rewarded in this life and in eternity to come. And those who are arrogant and proud will be punished in this life and in eternity to come. In God's world, there are real consequences for our actions. Going back to the SBC investigation from last week, God will also justly judge people who use their position in Jesus's church to abuse and harm other people. God knows the difference between the sheep and the wolves. And Jesus instructed us to evaluate people by their works. Christians are people that completely rely on God's grace, but that grace must never be cheapened by using it as a cover for practicing sin, especially within the church. Even though the psalmist is comforted by God's judgments from long ago, there is something that makes him extremely angry. What makes him full of fury is wicked people to reject God's instruction. One of the things that really struck me in this section of the psalm is that what makes the psalmist really angry isn't that he's been ridiculed or had to endure mockery. It's that God and his instruction are being rejected. I tend to get angry about much less important things. In fact, I tend to get most angry when things don't go the way I plan them to. What was so helpful to me was the reorientation this week as I studied this passage 
of having my greatest anger redirected toward wicked people's rejection of God's instruction. And let's be clear. The psalmist is very angry. This isn't pish posh, Mr. and Mrs. Wicked. You know you really shouldn't be doing that. It's more like you are trampling on the words of the God who made you and will hold you accountable, and you should stop doing it right now. This is the type of anger that usually makes me uncomfortable. But as I thought about the sexual abuse that came to light this last week and the callous murder of people in that Texas classroom, I get it. When people act wickedly to intentionally abuse and kill other people, we should be very angry about that sin and the willful rejection of God's instruction. God gets very angry about sin. He hates sin and its effects on the world and the people he created. He hates it so much that those who persist in sin throughout their lives will experience eternal judgment from God. It's no wonder then that the psalmist who is informed by God's word and takes comfort in God's judgments would have a similar response to sin. One final word on God's judgments against sin. His anger against sin is real. Sin must be paid for, and either you will pay for your sin yourself, or through faith in Jesus, he will pay for your sin in your place. Those are the only two options, and we must all choose one of them. Placing faith in Jesus means turning away from our sin, asking God to forgive us for it, and trusting in Jesus' work to save us rather than any of our own works. God is just, and he is also gracious. So gracious, in fact, that he took the initiative himself to provide us a way to be forgiven for our sins against him. Knowing how God judges and that he is to be obeyed brings us to the last comfort of this section of Psalm 119. We're comforted through faith and obedience to God. The psalmist concludes with verses 54 through 56. Your statutes are the theme of my song during my earthly life. Lord, I remember your name in the night and I obey your instruction. This is my practice. I obey your precepts. It shouldn't be surprising that in a psalm, which is a song used by God's people to worship him, that a psalmist would talk about singing and its part in the life of faith in God. The psalmist makes God's statutes the theme of his song throughout all the days of his sojourn here on earth. God's statutes remind him of what is right and wrong in God's sight. Singing about them provides him a way to rehearse what God expects and how his people are to live in faith before him. Singing about them also provides a way to cement those reminders in his thinking. One of the best ways to burn something into our brain is by having words tied together with music. Countless jingles that we'd rather forget drive this point home. In fact, when I was uh, with Isaac and some other boys that he shared a cabin with at outdoor school, some of them sung a jingle back and forth to each other from a business that sells auto parts. 
that I'm pretty sure none of them have ever done business with. But the fact that that song existed with those words cemented itself in their minds in a way that caused them to repeat it over and over again. I'll spare you from singing it so that it doesn't get stuck in your head. I forget a lot of things. But if a tune I learned years ago starts to be played, the words pop right into my mind. There are songs that don't provide much benefit, like yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. And songs that provide me great comfort, like great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Can you hear it? This is one of the reasons why we choose the songs we include in worship carefully. We want to sing songs that are true, that proclaim God's words faithfully, and encourage us in our faith as we sing them together on Sunday morning and on our own throughout the week. I found that listening to worship songs really provides significant benefits as I'm reminded of God's character and actions throughout the day. In moments of sorrow, disappointment, and even overflowing joy, it's a blessing to have songs to sing to God, to express my heart and my emotions. On occasion, I'll even sing a new song that is a simple expression of what I'm going through in that particular moment, knowing that God will hear and respond. Along with singing about God's statutes, the psalmist remembers God's name in the night. There are a couple of ideas that we want to make sure we understand here about what the psalmist means. The first is that he's meditating on God's character day and night, all the time, every day. It is continuing practice to think about God's name and all it teaches us about him. Yahweh, which is God's name, teaches us that he is the God who exists in and of himself and depends on no one else. He's always been and always will be, and he always accomplishes his plans through his own strength. The second thing is that the psalmist finds comfort from knowing God's name in the darkness of night when he can feel most alone and separated from God. During the times when our sleep is disrupted, and we're awake in the middle of the night. God is there. And his character compels us to obey him. God doesn't slumber or sleep as we read this morning. Which means that he's available all the time for us to call out to him. We may need to wait for him to respond to our cries for help in the dark. But because we know God by his name. We know that he loves us and will provide us what we need at the right time. The final comfort of faith and obedience for the psalmist is to make it his practice to obey God. While the re wicked reject God's instruction, the psalmist practices obeying God. Knowing God leads us to obey him. Obeying God brings comfort and hope as we experience that everything he has told us is true. We all face many temptations not to obey. 
affliction that tires us out and makes us wonder if it's worth it to keep following God. And ridicule that makes us feel like we're not doing the right thing. But the true comfort in the midst of a tumultuous world comes from knowing and obeying God. When nothing around us makes sense, he does. When everything we've known falls apart, he stands firm. I began this sermon this morning by asking what kind of world are we living in? We're living in a world that was created by God to be very good and was originally free from sin and death. With Adam and Eve's choice to sin against God and follow their own desires, we now experience the horrors of sin and death on a daily basis. We can't blame God for that. We're the ones who chose to go our own way and are now horrified by the reality of what that means. At the same time, sin's entrance into the world didn't result in God's exit from the world. He's still here, holding it together, and he provided us an escape from sin and death through his son, Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, the sins we commit against God and others are forgiven. We also receive the promise of life now, during our sojourn on earth, while we wait for the eternal life God promised to give us in the future. Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again. And we will be resurrected to live eternal life with him in a new heavens and a new earth, where sin and death are finally and fully Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy to us. We thank you, Father, that you offer us real and true comfort. And Father, we ask today, may you be a comfort to us. May you comfort us in our affliction. May you comfort us through your judgments. May you comfort us in growing us in our obedience to you. Father, we thank you that your comfort is real and lasting not only during the difficulties and challenges that we face during this life here on earth, but into the future when your son returns as you have promised and reigns and judges justly and sets everything right. Lord, we desperately long for that day and we look forward to it. And at the same time, Father, you have taught us through your word that that day will come at the appropriate time. And in the meantime, we are to faithfully follow after you and trust you for your guidance, direction, and leadership. Help us, Lord, to persevere in faith. Help us to grow in putting away sin and following after your son. Please, Lord, keep working in us and through us to make us more like you. We rejoice in you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the comfort that you provide us through yourself. Lord, we rejoice in you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name.